morning. This is Jean Abshire with the International Power Hour. I am here with my co-host Cliff Staten, and we have with us this morning also our guest, our regular guest on all matters relating to the Middle East, Mr. Ken Stammerman. Good morning, Ken. Good, good morning, Jean. Good morning, Ken. Thank you for morning, coming Cliff. back. <laughs> we, we do like to have you. Um, so just for, for our listeners who may not know Ken, um, Ken is a retired U.S. Foreign Service officer, um, retired at the end of about a 30-year career and spent much of that time in the Middle East. So when we are going to be talking about Middle Eastern things, we virtually always bring in Ken. And today's topic is looking at, at the Arab-Israeli conflict, um, looking especially at, at the background to it, um, not... Uh, new news. We, we are going to do some new news toward the end, but we're going to give um, give our listeners kind of a background on the the Arab-Israeli conflict. Good, uh, right? It, it, as too often we hear, you know, history seems to begin begin yesterday uh, in in the news cycle. Yes. So uh, it's worth it's worth going back to uh, take the long view uh, as to uh, how the conflict began. Uh, just uh, Zionist movement. A long, there's a long history, uh, and, let and me Zionism. Could you explain that term uh, real that, quick? That's, yeah, that, okay, that's, that's worthwhile to talk a little bit about. Okay. What, what is Zionism versus uh, regular Judaism? Uh, yes, exactly. Well, to do that, we have to go back to the end of the 19th century, 20th, end of the 19th century, early 20th century. Um, and one of the, the, the great traumatic events for European Judaism uh, was the Dreyfus trial. Uh, and this was a, a, an event in which a... Uh, in France. Fr in France. Right. In, in which a, uh, a Jewish officer, a Major Dreyfus, was framed uh, by the general staff, uh, accused of, of uh, having spied for the Germans, and he, he was actually innocent. Uh, now, why this is significant is that one of the journalists covering the trial was Theodore Herzl. And Herzl is the, the primary figure, the prime figure in the origins of the Zionist movement. Uh, there had been in the past, over the centuries, some movement of Jewish people back to the Holy Land. Uh, for example, after 1492, the expulsion of, of Jews from Spain, right. some made their way back and so on. Right. But uh, Theodore Herzl covered the, the Dreyfus trial. And as uh, Dreyfus was sentenced, and you know his, his uh, rank stripped in the formal way and all that, the crowds were shouting death to the Jews. Uh, and, the and Herzl, who had been uh, an assimilated uh, Jewish mm -hmm. Austrian journalist, mm -hmm. uh, was shocked. He said France should be the last country in Europe where this could happen. So he then it is shocking to hear things like that. Yeah. I mean, today certainly, but even then, I mean, even then, yeah. in France especially, because yeah. he thought France was the first country where Jews were liberated in Europe, and uh, so he wrote a book, and the book was *Die Judenstadt*, the Jewish state, and his argument, and this became the foundational argument of Zionism, is that until the Jews have a state of their own, they will not be safe anywhere in the world, especially in Europe. Europe was no longer safe for Jews. So just as the French have a, a state, uh, the Jews should have a state, and that state should be in Zion. So Zionism then argued that there should be a Jewish state, and it should be in the Holy Land, in uh, historic Palestine. Did so, he see this as an exclusive state for Jews only? I'm uh, just curious. I, I, uh, 
uh, it would be a, certainly a majority Jewish state. Okay. okay. Certainly. Yes. It would, the Jews would not be a minority, as they are everywhere else. Right. Right. Uh, but there would have to be a state in which the Jews were actually, it was their country. Uh, so uh, he organized the Zionist movement, again, returned to Zion. Uh, and in 1898, uh, the Jewish, the Zionist Congress, and it was called that, the Zionist Congress, mm -hmm. met, met in Switzerland. And he gave a, uh, a remarkable speech, which he said, if you believe it, it's not a dream. In 50 years, 1898, in 50 years, we will have a state. So that's quite that's remarkable prediction. Yeah. <laughs> quite <laughs> remarkable. Amazing. Uh, yes. So moving forward then. Uh, wow. Yeah, the, Jew, the Zionist movement then started uh, bringing people, Jewish people, to uh, the Holy Land, uh, which was then under the Ottoman Empire. Uh, these are called Aliyahs. There's several so-called Aliyah. That means to go up. When it's from the biblical uh, phrase to go up to Jerusalem because it's on a hill. You always right, go up. Right. Um, so, uh, the, uh, so the first wave of Jewish immigration, there had been, again, some small mm -hmm. movements before, but the first wave comes in the early 1900s. Uh, then World War II breaks out. World War I, sorry, boop. Uh, World War I breaks out, and in the middle of the war, uh, the British Empire issued a declaration, the Balfour Declaration, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. named after the, the British uh, foreign minister at the time, in which he said that Her Majesty's government looks with favor upon the establishment of a Jewish national home in Palestine. Uh, key phrases that are argued over the years, Jewish national home. Mm -hmm. Okay, that, at the end of the war, the Ottoman, armor, Ottoman Empire breaks up, and as uh, Lawrence of Arabia called it the Great Loot began as the uh, colonial powers divided up the Middle East. Uh, the British took uh, Palestine, they got a and they received a mandate from the League of Nations. Uh, they wanted Palestine area, mainly it, it controlled the, the uh, approaches to the Suez Canal. Right. Mm -hmm. Egypt was the real prize for the, for the British. Yeah. So uh, part of the mandate was uh, the Balfour Declaration. <laughs> so the British, uh, and through the 20s, uh, there was a, a Jewish, increased Jewish immigration coming out of Europe, uh, mainly at the time. Mm -hmm. uh, also, uh, Arab, uh, a lot of uh, Arab peoples uh, moved in to the mandate. Uh, it was prosperous. Uh, so there, uh, demographics are really tricky when you start talking about the early 20th century because the, the Turks didn't have really good records. Uh, it is well known, it is uh, historians report by looking at all the records that actually by 1900 Jerusalem had a Jewish majority. Mm -hmm. Jerusalem itself, although Interesting. probably okay. the mandate itself did not. So, uh, so then you had uh, increased Jewish immigration until um, the middle 30s, the Arab revolt in the mid 30s against the British and against the idea of Zionism. Mm -hmm. um, forced the British to reconsider their immigration policy. Uh, they started restricting the immigration of Jews in the late 1930s, just when Jews were trying to get out of Europe. But up to that point, um, yes. through the first Aliyah, yes. until that Arab revolt in the middle 30s, things had, things had been relatively peaceful. I know there was yeah. some stuff uh, in the late 1920s, if I recall late. correctly, but yes. largely peaceful, land being purchased and, you know, mm -hmm. credible real estate deals, not confiscated so people being dispossessed i mean that this pretty much the 
The, there, there was an explosive time between 1929, roughly, 1932. Yeah. Uh, major riots in Hebron. Right. Uh, where there had been so a Jewish community since 1498 or so. Uh, was uh, eliminated uh, in a pogrom in 1931-32. Uh, but largely, though, uh, the conflict, there, there was no major conflicts. The British had tried to establish a binational parliament. Uh, they were, their view was that when they left, there would be a binational state. Uh, didn't work. Uh, neither side was really interested. So, uh, so we move on, uh, World War II. Uh, and at the end of World War II, the, the British Empire was exhausted. Uh, yeah. Pretty much broke. Uh, tired of war. Right. And at, in from 1945-46 on, uh, the British mandate government was fighting revolts by both Arabs and Jews. Uh, Intercommunal fighting, uh, the British tried to step between uh, unsuccessfully. Uh, finally, uh, again, after many tries at some kind of binational or you know, what would happen after we leave, uh, they just threw, threw, threw up their, their hands and left. Shook up basically. their hands. Well, they threw it to the United Nations. Yeah. 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 <coughs> and, the, and they said, we're leaving. So right. you decide yeah. what to do. And uh, the decision was partitioned. Now there was a commission that would, you know, drew some lines, but nobody ever really agreed on that. So, uh, and on the final day of the mandate, uh, the, the last British officer uh, got in a jeep and drove to Haifa and left. They did not bring down the Union Jack and play somebody else's national anthem. They simply left. And uh, of course, war broke out. Yeah. Uh, the Jewish side immediately. immediately. Yeah, the Jewish side immediately. Yeah, fighting actually broke out before they left. But yeah. the the Jewish side immediately de declared a state. The Arab leadership did not, and that was because the Arab surrounding Arab states all invaded the British mandate. Uh, all of them did, uh, particularly the the Syrians, the Jordanians, and the Egyptians. Now, the Israelis fought the Jordanian army, which at the time had British officers, uh, mm -hmm. to a standstill interesting. Uh, what <laughs> <laughs> to a standstill in Jerusalem uh, and in the, what became the West Bank. Uh, they defeated the, the Egyptians in the south and pushed them back into the Gaza Strip. Uh, in the north, the Syrians were, were blocked around the Sea of Galilee. So you then had a ceasefire. So how do you go, Ken, from being, um, you know, people who had immigrated, you know, moving in across time yes. um, to being able like, to, to yeah, declare Arab army suddenly, yeah, a state and bam, this major military force. Yeah. How does how does that happen? Well, what happens is in the 1930s, the, as I mentioned, there was some intercommunal violence going on and the uh, Jewish authorities farmed uh, what was called the Haganah, the, the self-defense forces. Uh, there were other Jewish groups, for example, the Irguns Feilumi, uh, eventually led by Menachem Begin, right. which was much more, uh, we would say, towards the terrorist bent. Mm -hmm. They attacked civilian targets like the King David Hotel. Yeah, I would say that they uh, waged a war against the British. Uh, against the British. Yes, they yeah. did. Yes, they <laughs> did. So, uh, but all the while, uh, they were smuggling arms in, uh, buying arms in the, in the area. Uh, some of them were, the Haganah actually had some British trainers mm -hmm. at various times in the 30s. But what's interesting, and to keep in mind, that the war of 1947, 48, 49 was fought by Jews 
Jewish forces who were there, already there in the 1930s, the leadership, people like uh, Rabin and Sharon and Dayan, they were already there, Ben-Gurion. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the great immigration, the, the immigration from Europe, from the displaced persons camps, happened pretty much after the fighting. So you did not have, you know, suddenly an influx of people from Europe fighting against the Arab side. Right. You had established forces already there, the Haganah. On yeah. the Arab side, they were disorganized. That's part of the problem, and corrupt. You know, the, the, uh, what sparked uh, the Nasser Revolution, one of it, uh, the main causes was the corruption in the 1948 war, where they had overwhelming superiority in men and in weaponry, if you just simply counted tanks, artillery, yes. but, but it w mm. the corruption was uh, so bad that, that uh, Nasser and his, uh, his officers felt betrayed. Uh, so, uh, like what kind of corruption specifically do you mean? Uh, we're talking about uh, uh, weapons supplies, uh, bullets that were more dangerous to the people firing them uh, than to the enemy, uh, tanks that didn't run, fuel that wasn't there, that was paid for. Uh, all of the above, uh, officers whose positions were purchased. This was under King Farouk, uh -huh. uh, notoriously corrupt. Uh, so, uh, and on the other side, the, the one army that fought really well on the Arab side was the Jordanian army, uh -huh. the Hashemites. Again, they were British trained, British officers, Glub Pasha, mm -hmm. all these great names of the, of the, uh, uh, of the 20th century. So, uh, the, again, the war ends, then Israel begins uh, the great immigration from Arab states. The Iraqi, there was a large Jewish community in Iraq. Yes. And after 48, and especially after there's another war in 56, uh, they were left, they were expelled. Uh, the Egyptian Jewish community pretty much came. The Yemeni Jewish community uh, came to Israel. So that by the you know, mid-50s, you had a country of three million people, three million Jews, mi Arab minority. There's an Arab minority within uh, say Na the Nazareth area, Galilee, uh, they're uh, full voting citizens. They don't serve in the army, uh, but they are, they are citizens. And uh, so you had, uh, again, a Jewish state, 1950s, another war, 56. So had, had, had the war with the Arab neighbors come to an end prior to declaring themselves a, a state? As, uh, no, or actually, it was no, during the war? It was during the war. It, it was the last day the British left. Okay. The, the Jewish authorities declared a state. Uh, they didn't, at the time, Jerusalem was under siege, so the declaration was actually made in Tel Aviv. Okay. Um, so, uh, yeah, the, the, so they declared right away, and then the battle, the real war commenced after okay. the declaration of the state. And also at that time, um, we have happening something that um, many uh, Palestinians call and remember as the Nakba, or yes, catastrophe. The catastrophe. Yes. Could you explain well, what that happened, what that was, and how it fit into this larger how, context? How it fits in. It's, it, it, and again, here historians disagree mm -hmm. as to what really happened. Because as so often happens, you know, the points of view of the various historians are uh, mixed, let's say, to say the least. So what happens is the war breaks out, and uh, the fighting uh, is not in Tel Aviv. The fighting, say, along the coast is between Tel Aviv and Jaffa. Right now they're one municipality. Jaffa was largely Arab city. Uh, Tel Aviv was, began as a Jewish suburb of Jaffa, became a major city on its own right. So the fighting commences along there. Much of the fighting was done by the Irgun, uh, not by the Haganah along there. And uh, 
the Arab residents fled. How much of that was fear of terrorism? How much of it was actually being forced out at gunpoint is a matter of dispute. Right. Uh, and that's true. Now, in Galilee, uh, a lot of the Arab leaders stayed. Uh, so Nazareth was remained as it was, uh, and Umm al-Fahad found places like that, they stayed. Uh, but along the line south of Tel Aviv, uh, many people fled. Uh, and so you end up hundreds with... Hundreds of thousands, right? Uh, hundreds of thousands, yeah. yeah. Yes. So, uh, I mean, we're not talking like, you know, a hundred people, no, no, which no, can no. be hundreds many. Of, we're talking Hundreds of thousands. Of they, were put, they fled, pushed out, mixture of both. Uh, and they were taken into refugee camps in the neighboring countries. So you had uh, in Gaza, a lot of Palestinians moved into, past the Egyptian lines into Gaza from south of Tel Aviv. It's not far. Uh, in the north, many fled into Lebanon. Right. Uh, establishing a large Palestinian minority in Lebanon, into Syria, uh, and into the West Bank. That is the area occupied. Jordan. Yeah, it was the West Bank of the, man it's part of the mandate, uh, right. not Transjordan. And there were also camps in Trans Transjordan. Okay. So uh, a, lot of, a lot of these camps, and, and UNRWA, UNWRA, set up under the UN, United Nations Works and Re Rehabil Relief Organization, uh, set up to take care of the Palestinian refugees. Uh, and so for those hundreds of thousands of people who either fled or were forced out, like, they lost everything. Yes. I mean, I think that is important context. Like, it's not like you could pack up all your possessions and move when you're hoofing it out on very short notice. Like, you leave your property and you mm -hmm. don't get it back. You leave all your possessions, you don't get them back. You basically go, again, either fleeing voluntarily or forced out, depending on who you want to believe. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yes. I mean, you, you are leaving with what you can carry. Yes, much much as we see now in modern refugee camps. Right. Uh, we see that in Congo now. We see, you know, in, in, in Turkey, the Syrian refugees. Uh, that, that's all over the world. All over the world. Yeah. It's okay. a continuing problem. thing is, the Rahim Palestinian died. refugees stayed in the camps. Mm -hmm. They were not resettled by and large, uh, in other countries. So that's always been a, uh, they, they would like to return. The, now they're the grandchildren, great-grandchildren of the original refugees. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Third, fourth generation. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And under international law, refugees have a right of return, which is maybe something that we can talk about later as a, as a very contested point. It's a contested point. Absolutely. Yes. So, uh, Moving on. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> we, oh, and actually, okay. <laughs> it might be a good point to have a break. <laughs> I told Ken okay. yesterday that we had to make it through the whole history <laughs> okay. in 40 minutes. <laughs> so you're, you're keeping us honest with moving on. Uh, the International Power Hour is going to take a break, and we'll be back shortly. Welcome back to The Dog Show. Up next, we have Satchmo. Satchmo is a member of the Shelter Pet Group. That's right, a group known especially for their couch snuggling, ball chasing, face licking, and of course, companionship. Now, let's see him in action. Look how he makes eye contact with his person. That's actually known as the treat stare. How intuitive, and now he appears to be excitedly turning in circles. Ah, the happy dance will come in with this group. But really, the best way to know an amazing shelter pet like Satchmo is to meet one. Visit theshelterpetproject.org today. Adopt. Brought to you by Maddie's Fund, the Humane Society of the United States, and the Ad Council. No word in the English language is less convincing than probably. Are you sure we should get matching tattoos on our first date? Sure. I mean, we'll probably stay together. Probably? 
It's been 23 minutes since I ate. I can probably swim. Uh, you should wait 30 minutes. Mm, okay, now tell me what to do. Cannonball! Cramp! Oh, I have a cramp. I can probably hit the green from here. Probably. Can I get a mulligan? Ready to go? Hey, are you sure you're okay to drive? Yeah, I'm pretty sober. Yeah, I'm probably okay. Probably okay isn't okay, especially when it comes to drinking and driving. If you're drinking, call a cab, a car, or a friend. Buzz driving is drunk driving. A message brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. The International Power Hour is brought to you by the Political Science Program at IU Southeast. Are you interested in how power is exercised by the people? Political science might be the major for you. Whether it's the political science or public administration track, you will get the skills to make you ready for a powerful career. To find out how to do this, go to www.ius.edu slash political dash science. Welcome back to the International Power Hour. This is Jean Abshire. I'm here with my co-host Cliff Staten and our guest Ken Stammerman. We are talking about uh, basically the background of the Arab-Israeli conflict and we're trying to make it through a load of history um, in about the next 20 minutes and we've made it up to uh, just after uh, the war at the creation of Israel in yes. 1948 and Ken was like moving right on. So Ken, <laughs> move right on. <laughs> okay, move right on. Uh, there are a number of wars uh, between the uh, Arabs and Arab states uh, and Israel after 1948-49. Um, now, keep in mind, and this is important, uh, the war of 1948-49 ended in a ceasefire. Okay, right. No peace treaties, and one of the outstanding re uh, issues resulting from that war is what is Israel's eastern border? Yeah, what, are, what, is the what are the boundaries? What are the boundaries? And so basically, we're just not going to fight anymore, but we're not agreeing on anything. Correct. Yeah. But in okay. some ways, the boundaries are defined as to where they were. Where, where they the were, the were. ceasefire, That's ceasefire right. lines. The ceasefire lines. All they are are ceasefire lines. That's correct. It, it, with the exception of the Le Lebanon has an international border, right. which we, and uh, things have changed since then with Egypt as well. But so, uh, they were ceasefire lines. Uh, now, uh, after... Uh, we had, a, we had a series of wars after 1950, uh, 1956, when the uh, British, French, and Israelis teamed up on Nasser, mm -hmm. really Suez War. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, 1967. 1967 is a key year in the Middle East. Yes. Because what happens is that the, the, uh, both sides actually blunder into a war that neither wanted. Uh, the, the, um, it was started over... The, there was a, a battle uh, between the Israelis and the Syrians over water in the north. Mm -hmm. And the, yeah. the Syrians wanted to dam uh, one of these tributaries of, uh, of the uh, Jordan. Right. But anyway, uh, the Arabs were afraid that Israel was going to uh, invade Syria. So uh, Nasser moved his armies in the Sinai to threaten the Israelis in the south and asked the United Nations to get out of the way where they'd been since 1956. And to everyone's surprise, the United Nations got out of the way. Mm -hmm. uh, there was a, a blocking force. Uh, at that point, uh, Nasser closed what's called the Straits of Tehran, uh, which was an open secret, which nobody talked about, is that Israel got all of its oil from Iran, from the Shah of Iran, mm -hmm. uh, his Iran. And if you close the Straits, then 
Israel doesn't have. There's no oil. There's no right. oil. Right. And in 30 days, the tanks aren't going to run anymore. Right. Uh, at that point, I, I arrived first in Israel in 1967, just after the war. And uh, our embassy at that point said Israel's going to war because uh, uh, Moshe Dayan, who was then in opposition, joined the cabinet. Mm -hmm. And it was clear they were going to go to war. It's just a question of when. And they uh, chose to go to war early June, mm -hmm. six famous six-day war. Uh -huh. uh, the uh, Israelis won on all fronts, uh, including, uh, very importantly, uh, in Sinai, that's with Egypt, and in the West Bank. So the Jordanian army was pushed back across the, across the Jordan River into what was Transjordan. Uh, the Israelis occupied all of Mandate Palestine, mm -hmm. including Gaza. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, controlled Sinai all the way to the Suez. Well, uh, 67, 73, another war. Uh, the Egyptians catch the Israelis by surprise. The Syrians also, but particularly the Egyptians, catch the Israelis by surprise. Uh, the Israelis eventually uh, uh, block the uh, Arab advance with the help of the United States, okay. resupply under, uh, under Nixon and, and Kissinger. And that begins a long process because uh, the Israelis saw it as, as a defeat, really. Uh, the people did. Right. They lost so many people yeah. after the, the great victory of 67. So uh, Kissinger, uh, back and forth, famous shuttle, eventually we come to a peace agreement with Egypt. Uh, and it's a separate peace. Uh, Sadat said, and I was in the, the, the King David Hotel when he, when he came. I was part of the American embassy then again. Uh, so uh, Sadat said it was not a separate peace. But it was. So the Israelis uh, made a deal with the Egyptians. They would eventually withdraw from all of Sinai, uh, not from Gaza, but from all of Sinai. I think politically he, it was difficult for him to make that, say that was public, publicly yeah. say that was, yeah. it was separate. It was separate. Yeah. yeah. He couldn't say that. Giving yeah, his leadership in the Arab world yeah. and exactly. that type of thing. But once he signed that peace. a peace agreement is a huge deal. It is. And it let Egypt focus more on its domestic issues, which mm -hmm. it has many, yes. uh, and not confronting Israel mil militarily. So eventually... And uh, it's significant for Israel and its security as well. Oh, yeah. Obviously, it, with, yeah. Uh, Without Egypt, there can be no major war with the Arabs. Yeah. Right. That's, right. that's, a, that's a given. Yeah. Right. So what happens after that? Uh, you have so perhaps United Nations Resolution 242? Ah, yes. Kind of a yeah. should have been, one should have different interpretation. Yes. This is after the Six-Day War. Six war. Uh, Indeed. The, as to where yeah. the boundaries... Are, exactly. I'm not Here's sure boundaries well, the correct we, word, but anyway. We, we, Lines. We, <laughs> we and the British, I can tell you this, we and the British drafted 242. That I know. Right. <laughs> And uh, there's, of course, two texts. There's uh, the United Nations, there's the official text, there's the uh, English, English text, French text, and I'm sure there's a Chinese text. Mm -hmm. But the, the English text says that uh, the part the Israel will withdraw from territories occupied in the recent conflict. From territories occupied. Right. Mm -hmm. The French, you can't do that in French. So it says, uh, from the territories occupied in the recent conflict. Uh, which is uh, more than a quibble, because uh, the Arab side said, okay, Israel should withdraw back to the 67 lines. The Americans have always said, the lines will be negotiated. Israel should withdraw from territories, with a final status being the result of a negotiation between the parties to the conflict. So Egypt was one of the parties, and the Israelis withdrew. And 
language does matter. Yeah, language. that's what I was just going to say. I mean, we're. I mean, this whole thing hinges on just literally the different functions of how a language works. In one language, you can omit the word the, and in another word, you in another language, you can't, you can't. and it fundamentally changes the meaning. It does right. so much nuance. It does so important. Now, again, what happens then after? After the Israelis occupy the West Bank, its settlements begin. Okay. Uh, so, which are which are what settlements? Settlements. Okay. These are uh, Jewish villages, towns uh, established in the in the territories in the West Bank. In the West Bank, whether that's occupied territory or whatever you might want to call it, the territories. Uh, territories that Palestinians expected and others yes. expected to see Israel withdraw from. Yes. Yes. But some, you know, the, some of these settlers are religious motivated. Others are more economic motivated, economic motivated uh, and uh, supported by the Israeli state. Whereas the religious settlers simply yeah. set up their set some, up shops, so to speak. But there are also places like Hebron, where there had been a Jewish community from 1498 until 1932, and their children then moved back in. Um, mm. These were also settlers. Mm -hmm. Lots of ways to. But it's it's obviously an issue because you got all you got hundreds of thousands of Israeli citizens now living in, in West the West Bank. Bank. Yeah. Yes. Now uh, another key event, though, we should mention is uh, Black September. Uh, yes. This is important because in, in uh, a lot, as I mentioned, a lot of the uh, Palestinian refugees had moved into Jordan proper across the Jordan River under the Hashemite monarch, that's King Hussein. Uh, there were a lot of them. They were well armed. Uh, they were leading raids into Israel, and the Jordanians were getting punished by Israel every time the Palestinians would raid into Israel proper. Right. So, uh, in, in uh, September 1970, Yasser Arafat led a revolt in Jordan against the Hashemite monarchy. Uh, he was defeated. The and Yasser Arafat was whom? He, oh, yes, he was the <laughs> sorry the leader of the leader of the, P, uh, the PLO. Fatah. Yes. The largest group. Fatah faction of faction the PLO. Of the PLO. Palestinian, yeah. Which is the Palestinian Liberation Organization. Yes. <laughs> which in many ways, uh, when I teach it, I think of it more of kind of an umbrella organization with many different groups mm -hmm. underneath it, underneath the umbrella. Yes. So yeah. that makes sense? With Fatah being the largest right. group and the, the best armed and best trained. So, and also the most independent because right. some of the other groups were actually fronts for foreign governments meddling in Palestinian affairs. Mm -hmm. uh, so, uh, Arafat's group uh, was defeated. Uh, they were expelled into Lebanon, mostly. Right. And that led to all manner of complications within Lebanon, hmm. uh, although it established um, the Hashemite monarchy. Uh, well, now, moving on, uh, the uh, Israelis and uh, Lebanese ended up tangling because of all these, all the Palestinians who moved into southern Lebanon at the time. Right. Uh, and after one of the, uh, the, the battles, it was a, a minor war incursion by the Israelis, the United Nations agreed to something called the United Nations Interim Force in Lebanon. Yes. UNIFIL. Yep. UNIFIL. Which is hitting, which we are now reading about in just very recently. Yes. And currently. Right. So that's where UNIFIL dates from. Uh, then it follows the uh, Israeli war in Lebanon, 1981-82, where they intervened in, in the uh, Lebanese c civil war on the side of the Christians, actually. Mm -hmm. uh, and we sent in our Marines to help evacuate 
the Palestinians from Beirut. From Beirut, yes. From Beirut, yes. because the Israelis who had moved to the heights over Beirut were reducing an Arab city to rubble with our weapons. So we decided the best thing to do is to help the Palestinians leave, yeah. which we did. Uh, but then the barracks attack, uh, Marines dead, right. the United States. 1982, right? 83? 80, 83. Uh, the Americans simply left. Yeah. Uh, and the Israelis left. And the war eventually wound down with Syria dominating Lebanon. Yeah. Uh, now, one of the results of that war is that the that the Shia minority in Lebanon, which had been at the bottom of the heap, and the Shias are one of the, oh, the main oh, sects yeah. <laughs> within <Oops>. Islam. <laughs> Oops. Yes, we. That's There's another, so much context. That's another <laughs> issue, but yes, yeah, Sunni Shia, uh, the two main branches, uh, the Shia in Lebanon were at the bottom of the heap. You had Christians, Sunni Muslims, Orthodox. Maronite Christians who are under the Pope, uh, Orthodox Christians, Sunni Muslims, Druze, who are another ethnic religious minority, sort of Muslims. Yeah. Uh, and the, the Lebanese society is amazingly complex. complicated Complic and diverse. Put it simply. Yes. yes. And in Lebanon has become, a, again, a place where many other countries play their own games yes. and finance various groups. So we had... Um, the Shia, who had been at the bottom of the heap militarily, economically, everything in Lebanon, uh, suddenly found a voice. Uh, the, uh, the Syrians were, after all, also a religious minority, the Alawites within Islam, and they helped the uh, Shia take a much larger position in Lebanese politics, and a militia emerged called Hezbollah. That's Hezbollah, the party of God. Uh -huh. Right. And, and uh, Hezbollah eventually takes over uh, the positions the PLO once had in southern Lebanon, uh, yes. and that and that Shia connection or that that yeah Shia connection is important yes. because Hezbollah also then has a relationship with Syria, with and, Syria with Iran. and with Iran, which is kind of the center for Shia Islam. Iran is yes. Um, and although, although again, it, Iran is Persian. Yes, Shia. Not Yes. Not, right, Arab not Arab. Shia. It's important exactly. to remember that the Hezbollah and the Syrian Alawites, these are all Arabs. Yes. Which is context that Isn't some people more, admit. Yeah. Right. Yes. More nuance. More <laughs> <laughs> nuance. Uh, so, uh, yeah, so we have then uh, Hezbollah, because they've been armed by Syria, trained by Iran, uh, when the Syrian civil war breaks out, Syria calls on Hezbollah, uh, the militia, uh, to intervene on its behalf in Syria. So the Hezbollah plus Iranian trainers uh, become the sort of the shock troops for the Shia, the, for the regime, the Damascus regime, uh, Syria. Assad uh, in Syria. Uh, and eventually, as we see now, the war is winding down. Uh, the Russians, Ir Russia, Iran, Hezbollah, and Assad forces uh, seem to have come out the winners. Uh, the, yes. Isra the Israelis pretty much have stayed out of the war, except to warn everybody that if anything happens on the Golan Heights occupied yeah. by Israel from Syria, uh, anything happens there or on the Lebanese border, uh, they will retaliate. Yeah. Uh, short of that, they've pretty much stayed, stayed out. out of the so we have these it. dynamics extending like right into you know current events today that, that yes. some listeners may not even see as being bound up with with Israel, actually. Uh, I very think much some. So. 
some sen- tend to separate. Oh, the you know the war in Syria. That's another thing. No. Partly because the Israelis have stayed out. But here we have the whole basis. We do, and, and all, all the while this is going on. Remember, you've had this Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Uh, ever since, you know, 1950. And the Palestinians, yeah. I don't think we actually, we've talked about them, but we I don't haven't think we've defined, <laughs> well, we've, a couple of references, but I don't think we've defined who they are. Ah, uh, interesting <laughs> question. Who is a Palestinian? Yes. yes. Uh, okay, uh, generally we'd say uh, Palestinians are uh, Arab residents, uh, uh, no, either Arab residents of uh, the West of the occupied territories of uh, West Bank Bank and Gaza. Gaza. Some people would extend that to say also Arab citizens of Israel. Maybe, maybe not. Uh, But certainly you would include those people living in refugee camps. Yeah, those uh, displaced after the 1948, or in the context of the 1948 war, the 1967. 67 war again. All the wars. All the wars who've been displaced and who are either living in the camps, descendants of the camps, and descendants of people who originally went to the camps. Uh, so those are the, the Palestinians. Uh, they so otherwise said people living in the region prior to the establishment of the state of Israel. Uh, but can then one, would can you one co- say that? You might accept that uh, where does that put the Jewish residents yeah. of people living in the region? Actually, they were called Palestinians by the British. Important they point. They were called Palestinian yes. Jews. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So it's a little tricky. You have passports of people who were born in 1946 in Jerusalem. It's Palestinians. Palestinians, right? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I th- people need to know that. I think so. That's good. Uh, yeah. So, it is, are we at a stopping point? Okay. <laughs> um, it looks like we are. T- it is time for another break. So the International Power Hour will be right back. Hi, we're the Goo Goo Dolls. We're fortunate that we can give our daughters everything they need to grow and learn, but not every child can focus on classes and play dates. Nearly 13 million kids in the U.S. face hunger. That's one in six. School lunch might be their only meal each day, and it's heartbreaking to imagine any child going to bed hungry. We're dreaming of a perfect day when kids can smile, play, and just be kids without worrying about where their next meal will come from. Feeding America is working to make that perfect day a reality. Each year, the Feeding America network of food banks rescues billions of pounds of good food that would have gone to waste. That food is given to families and children in need. Being a kid should be about doing things that make an ordinary day extraordinary. Learning to play an instrument, building a sandcastle, hosting tea parties. Hunger should never be an obstacle to growing up. You can help end childhood hunger in your community by visiting feedingamerica.org. Brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council. The International Power Hour is brought to you by the International Studies Department at IU Southeast, where you can prepare for your global future. More information online at ius.edu slash international dash studies. The International Power Hour is brought to you by the Department of Political Science at IU Southeast, studying power in all its forms and places, offering multiple tracks in political science and public administration. More information online at ius.edu slash political dash science. Imagine being fired because of who you love. Imagine being denied medical treatment because of who you marry. Imagine being evicted because of who you are. Millions of Americans don't have to imagine this. They have to live it. Because in 31 states, it's legal to discriminate against LGBT people. Get the facts at beyondido.org. Brought to you by the Gill Foundation and the Ad Council. 
Welcome back to the International Power Hour. This is Jean Abshire with my co-host Cliff Staten and our regular Middle East uh, expert, Kem Stammerman, who is giving us a great backgrounder on uh, the Arab-Israeli conflict at, at high pace, uh, but hitting the high points. <laughs> so high points and low points. High yes. point, yeah, well, there's yeah, both of those for sure, yeah. Some of those. Perhaps it might be best to kind of maybe pick up with maybe the Oslo Accords, start from there. Sure, Cliff, good idea. So what happens after uh, the mid you're past the mid 80s, uh, and the Israelis have been occupying uh, the West Bank and Gaza for all these years? Borders are open. You can drive from Tel Aviv to Bethlehem or to Gaza, go shopping. It was just uh, one uh, sort of borderless large area. Open for everybody. Open for everybody. So uh, Palestinians could, could move back and forth. To, yeah, they were working. You had. Uh, 80,000 commuters right, every day. Right, Come into Israel. Yes. Come into Israel. And that proper. was an important part of the Israeli economy and workforce, right? And an important part of the Palestinian economy. As well, yes. as well. Yes. 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 Absolutely. yes, absolutely. Very much so. A lot of construction yeah. work, for example, yes. was, was done by just... Done, done by Palestinians. Yeah. Uh, but you also, had, like on the beach in Tel Aviv, you had Palestinian families. Uh, <laughs> I was there. Yeah. Uh, it was, uh, you know, pretty I much... I think a lot of people don't realize anymore since things have changed so much how much right. you know connectivity important uh, connectivity and mutually beneficial mutually. connectivity and, and intermingling there was during that time right. period. there was al always opposition uh, again as to and obviously arguments within Jewish Israeli Jewish party politics right. as to what to do with the West Bank there was a large uh, a lot of sympathy for the position of simply uh, annexing uh, uh, Begin though and realize Nachum Begin, former prime minister, had realized that, that that presents a demographic problem. Yeah. If you annex the West Bank and Gaza, that in enough years you would have a, a Palestinian Arab majority uh, within, right. within Israel. So they, he offered autonomy, whatever that meant. Uh, most Palestinians rejected that. There was always an undercurrent of resistance, uh, sometimes terrorism uh, against the occupation, uh, particularly in Gaza, uh, but also in various times in the West Bank. Uh, over the years. But anyway, finally, um, in 1989, there was a spark that set off what was called the first intifada. Intifada is an uprising. The spark actually was a traffic accident where, you know, as these things explode, you know, the accident and police show up and rocks get thrown and, and the entire West Bank and Gaza just exploded into uh, civil resistance. Pretty much. So uh, civil resistance, what do you mean by that? Uh, pretty much nonviolent. But yeah. uh, things like, you know, putting a Palestinian flag up on, on the middle of the street in the middle of the night. And, right. And the, the Israeli patrol would go in and roust a shopkeeper and take the flag down. And, uh, small enough stuff, but uh, including some violent incidents. But a lot of it was simply nonviolent. Uh, and the Israelis, the Israeli leadership realized that the status quo was no longer acceptable to the Palestinians. You had a whole generation already that grew up under yeah. occupation. So uh, the Israelis and the Palestinians met secretly uh, in Oslo. Uh, we had nothing to do with it. The United States, it was uh, Norwegian hosting, and they came to an, agree an agreement, a framework agreement. And the framework was that the Israelis would, uh, it's kind of complicated, area A, B, C, and so on. Right. The Israelis would withdraw, you'd have Palestinian self-government in certain areas, uh, uh, these were joint patrols in certain areas, Israeli security control in other areas, uh, special regimes for the settlement areas, sort of. But the, the goal would be eventually, as the Palestinians saw it, a Palestinian state. Uh, this was a co 
opposed by many in the Israeli side, but that was clearly the view of Oslo, where the end point would be. A two-state solution. A two-state solution. Yes. And you would have negotiations. They were scheduled further negotiations on what's called final status. The final status solutions would be borders. What would be Israel's eastern borders? What would be the status of the settlements uh, and Jerusalem? Jerusalem. And that was always going to be the hard, hard part. Why so hard? It's so hard because the Palestinians' uh, leadership, Palestinians, want a capital in Jerusalem. Uh, after 67, the Israelis annexed all of Jerusalem and said it is Israel's eternal capital, period. No further division. So, uh, Why can't you just divide up then into, into parts, though? Well, uh, that's <laughs> what diplomats tried to figure out at various points. And this was what led to another Camp David, actually, uh, when the Oslo schedule was falling apart. Uh, the uh, Yasser, Arafat, Yasser Arafat's team, uh, you know, through the 90s, uh, they and the Israelis could not agree on where to go, how to advance towards final status. Mm -hmm. Finally, uh, President Clinton brought the Israeli Prime Minister, uh, Barak at the time, uh, Yasser Arafat and his team to Camp David to try to work out a deal and they couldn't do it. Mm -hmm. They came close. Yes. The sticking point in the end, for everything I've heard from people who were there, um, the sticking point was Jerusalem. Um, the Israel sovereignty. What do you do about sovereignty? Even if you allow the PLO, Palestinian Authority by then, uh, to set up an office in, Jer in East Jerusalem, can they call that a capital? Mm -hmm. um, without sovereignty, the Palestinians insist on sovereignty. And finally, it's what do you do with the Haram Sharif? What do you do with the Temple Mount, yeah. the holy places? Uh, and so, so it's just because I was about to about to toss that in. So one of the really tricky things here that I think a lot of people don't um, don't realize is that um, the Temple Mount uh, is a sacred site to the Jewish people. Yes. The the old site of King David's Temple. Yes. Um, and it is virtually in the same place as, Virtually. yeah, as... We, w we wish we knew, but archaeologists are not allowed to dig up there. Right. Right. Yes. Um, but virtually in the same spot as um, what the third most sacred site to Muslims, yes. the place where Muhammad ascended into heaven, if I yes. recall correctly, in the, in the um, yes. which is a big deal. And so there's there's really no way just because of, of how virtually on top of each other these sites are that you can be like, okay, so that's... This is yours, that's this is ours. Yours. Yeah, that's you just, just can't do that. literally can't do that's it. That's quite a sticking point, although there was one suggestion, and the Americans, many of the American team actually pushed it forward to say... Because sovereignty is important, right? Mm -hmm. um, Absolutely. <laughs> for, for this. <laughs> Political scientists will always say sovereignty is important. Would, would, say, would say that neither side would claim sovereignty. Mm -hmm. The sovereignty in the Temple Mount area would be to the Almighty. That's and there you would have Israeli security control, as they do now, with the waqf, the Muslim religious authorities, would have the physical control of who goes in, goes out, where they can enter, and so on. Somewhat uh, of a joint administration. Something like that. Yeah. So that was one possible solution. But in the end, they could not agree. Yeah. It fell apart. And at that point, what was called the Second Intifada broke out. And this was violent. Yes. This was car bombs. This was, uh, you know, shooting in the streets, riots, rocks, everything. 
uh, and it uh, finally sort of ended of its exhaustion more than anything else right. by the mid, uh, by 2004, 2005. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and since then, uh, you know, pretty much stasis, well, not stasis, because the Palestinian leadership fell apart. The Hamas, which right. was under PLO, more or less, as you, as Cliff pointed out, uh, PLO was a broad leadership organization. Yeah. Hamas broke away and took over Gaza. Uh, their religious, Sunni, religious kin to the Muslim Brotherhood. There were elections held were elections. and Hamas. They actually won a majority. Oh, yeah. One. And much of that, at least my, my take on it, was that many people in Gaza, um, PNA was pretty corrupt. And in oh. many ways, it, it wasn't so much pro-Hamas, it was anti-Al-Fatah. Anti, uh, is that right? Fatah. Uh, that was a large part. Of it. Now, remember, the elections, they actually won a majority of all the Palestinians. Uh, yeah. But the Abbas was, Mahmoud Abbas now, the, the successor uh, right, to, to Yasser Arafat. Yasser Arafat. Fatah. Uh, he took over. He just rules now indefinitely. They've had no further elections. Yeah. Uh, and yes, it was a battle against the corruption of Fatah right. uh, in, in many ways. But there's a deep blood divisions uh, between uh, uh, and blood debts on both sides now between Hamas and the Palestinian mm -hmm. Authority. And to my mind, uh, there will be no advance on that until Abbas passes. steps down. Steps, he's not. I don't think he will voluntarily step down. So, but he's old. Yes, that's and what not well, I believe. Correct. Yeah. Correct. So, so, so that uh, the, meanwhile, you know, the Israeli but Hamas is. I mean, they, they are more radical than the Palestinian Authority or, well, radical or Fatah has certain, been. Yeah, Fatah. Interestingly, Fatah is a secular organization. Right. They they argued for a secular Palestinian state. Right. Is what they want. And have tacitly acknowledged the existence of yes. the state of Israel. Oh, they, yes. Whereas, they have. whereas yeah. Hamas has ha not. Hamas has not. And that's a that's a key thing. It, it very much so. Yeah. So, uh, and meanwhile, along these ways, there have been several tussles, uh, battles, uh, operations between the Israeli army and Hamas, yeah. uh, which is Gaza is very densely populated. Very. So, whenever they have a battles there, and you're talking about ten miles wide at some points. Uh, you're bound to have civilian casualties, yeah. and it's it's. And meanwhile, you know there are Israeli villages very near the border of of, of uh, Gaza. So that's uh, that's an ongoing flashpoint. Yeah. They, they came very near to going to war, and this brings us up to current times. Uh, just a couple of weeks ago, yes, uh, and that they did not go to war in November led to the resignation of the Israeli Defense Minister Avigdor Lieberman because he wanted the Israeli army to go to war in Gaza right. uh, to put down attacks mm -hmm. into Israel. Um, Netanyahu did not want a war at the time, and apparently the army did not. And they've worked out a deal to calm things down now by bringing Qatar, Qatari money uh, into Gaza to start paying salaries that the Palestinian leadership PA was refusing to do, and also to expand fishing rights and things like that. Which so. is a big deal, because that's, I mean, the, the quality of life for people in Gaza is known to be truly terrible. It's pretty bad. The, yeah. they, they had no money to pay, fuel, pay for fuel, uh, you know, and it, it gets pretty cold in the winter, yeah. actually, and pretty hot in the summer. Yeah. Uh, so electricity was only power a few hours a day, uh, water quality getting worse and worse 
So, uh, yeah, bringing some guttery money and uh, stopping any fighting along the line with Israel will be a big help for the, the uh, Palestinian people in, in Gaza. Um, now, I should say very, uh, yeah. Yeah, we've got a couple few minutes. <laughs> a couple of minutes. Now, one of, the, one of the main tactics, one of the successful tactics, the Palestinians in God, Hamas fighters, and they aren't the only faction in Gaza, remember. There's also Islamic Jihad, but right. leave them aside for now. Uh, one of the major tactics they've used successfully in fighting the Israeli army has been tunnels. Mm -hmm. uh, it's reasonably easy to tunnel your way out of Gaza because the land's fairly sandy. Uh, you get some, you know, supports in. And when the Israeli army has, has fought Hamas, uh, they've been surprised that these tunnels, suddenly fighters would appear up behind them, appear behind right them. Right out, mm -hmm. yeah. Uh, also worried about uh, kidnappings, yes. possibility of infiltration and kidnapping Israelis. And even tunnels into Egypt as well. In Egypt, Egypt as well. Uh, to try some to apparently big enough you can drive a truck through. Yes, yeah, trying yeah. to get supplies in. Smuggling yeah. and right. vehicles mm -hmm. and stuff. Yeah, really something. Yeah. Uh, we now, have a new tunnel situation, We have a new tunnel though. situation. <laughs> yes, and that brings us to really to current times. Yes. The like Israeli breaking yeah. news pretty much was just within the last few days. Even. Yes, the Israeli army has uh, found tunnels leading from Lebanon uh, into Galilee, into the Israeli uh, lines and past the Israeli border fence uh, into Galilee. Uh, so uh, these tunnels that we've been talking about with with Gaza, Gaza is far in the south, right? Yes, uh, on the Egypt border, um, but Lebanon is the far north. So far we have north. so op sort of opposite ends of Israel now being tunneled into essentially. And, tunneled into, and, and the people in the north, this is Hezbollah. Yes, I remember we right. we've already talked about Hezbollah earlier with the Syrian connection, so on. And keep in mind, Unifil is there along the Lebanese border, the United Nations. Well, the Israelis have found so far three tunnels. Now, they're easier to detect because the land, yeah, the land is rocky. So what the Israelis have done is exposed the tunnels and called in Unifil every time to say, aren't you guys supposed to be watching for this stuff? And, you know, it leads to everybody being embarrassed. That is, the Lebanese government, Lebanese army is there, not Hezbollah, uh, patrol the border. Uh, they should have known. Unifil should have known. Uh, and so the Israelis now are actually they're booby trapping the tunnels. Yeah, I I read a, a news report I believe about this. I believe it was from CNBC that um, indicated that the Israeli military has actually been been looking for these tunnels since 2014. Okay. So, I mean, okay. the, well, some of them are quite quite deep from what I've read. I, I think read. they've been working on the technology. They're certainly worried yeah. about that sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, the technology is is not that simple. If you they dig deep enough, because it's an earthquake zone, by the way. Yeah. So, the, the Great Madness. Rift runs right down right. through Galilee. Yeah. And so uh, they've been working on the technology, but they've actually just found these tunnels now in the last last several weeks. Yeah. And again, they're worried that the they know the the plans would be for Hezbollah to sneak people in behind their lines. Right. And like grab a village or houses or families as right. hostages. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I've read that some of the uh, drama surrounding this, I mean, some of it is obviously security, yes. um, but in our like remaining minute, <laughs> um, an element of this is also perhaps um, politics relating to Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu's oh, yes. um, political and legal problems. Yes, he has political and legal problems. His, he's now been accused 
by the police. Three uh, times. Three times so far. Yeah. However, this is not an indictment by any means. This is a recommendation by the Israeli police to the Israeli attorney general. For uh, corruption. For, for corruption. Right. Uh, many people around him have been indicted yeah. over arms purchases, bribery. Yeah. Uh, did he protect them or didn't he? Uh, was he involved? How much was he involved? Uh, but he has not been indicted. That's up to the state prosecutor who is taking his time. Um, I should mention very quickly also uh, what's happening on the Lebanese border right now. A remarkable photo the other day shows in a, in a foggy field you've got Israeli soldiers. Uh, there's no fence at this point. In some areas there are no fences actually uh, because of the topography. Uh, walking in a foggy field and there are UNIFIL soldiers, oh, soldier, officers, watching them from one side and you know that behind UNIFIL are Lebanese army Lebanese people. army. And mm -hmm. that is so dangerous. Yeah. One small mistake. One mistake. M miscalculation. Somebody, yeah. mm -hmm. you know, somebody whose father was killed during the Lebanese Civil War and blames it on the Israelis, something yep. like that goes on and, and, right. and things could fall apart very quickly in the North. So it's a real powder keg. situation to watch. Yes. Awesome. Yes, that's, that's the next powder keg is the, uh, is the Lebanese border. We have to watch. Well, Ken, thank you so much. Thank that was an amazing much, tour of a lot of history. <laughs> <laughs> a great backgrounder. Um, thank you to our listeners for tuning in to the International Power Hour. And uh, this is the end of season two, uh, but we will be back oh. in January and in the interim be playing uh, some, what do you call them? Encore, encore, encore presentations. Encore presentations. <laughs> Sounds so much better. <laughs> Not reruns, encore. Uh, so thank you. Or to you can pick your favorite show from podcasts and so iTunes on. iTunes and Stitcher. So thank you very much for listening. Bye-bye.